Welcome back, guys, to Neurology Exam Prep. My name is Safa Abdul Hakim. I'm a neurology resident at Yale University, PGY3, and I have with me one of our pediatric neurology attendings, uh, Dr. Kathleen Cardinelli, um, who will go over the different leukodystrophies with us. And I, um, I understand how difficult that uh, topic could be. Uh, for me in particular. So hopefully we'll go through it with a simple approach and we can review it together. How are you, Dr. Cardinelli? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, very good. So why don't we start by talking about what leukodystrophy is? Right, so leukodystrophy is kind of a catch-all term, um, which encompasses a lot of different varying diseases. But the, the main feature is that it uh, in some way affects the white matter in generally speaking in particular the myelin so it can be thought of you know there's different ways that you could do that but you either have a demyelination or dysmyelination um, or you might have a hypomyelination in either case it's still under the umbrella of a leukodystrophy wonderful what are different myelin defects um, or, or different mechanisms that could could cause a myelin defect that perhaps could help us categorize the different leukodystrophies. So, um, and I should say that, you know, important, uh, an important part of the leukodystrophy definition is that it's uh, a genetic condition as opposed to say, you know, the demyelinating disease of MS. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, and it tends to be, tends to be progressive. But um, so when you think about the different kind of categories of leukodystrophies, um, there's a bunch of different ways that you could classify them. But I like to think of them first in terms of is this demyelinating or hypomyelinating? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the first big branch. Okay. Um, and then the, you know, among the demyelinating types, you can categorize them in general by type of metabolic defect that's causing the leukodystrophy. So for example, one of the more common types would be uh, lysosomal storage disorders uh, in which some enzyme uh, which is responsible for breaking down either lipids or proteins is uh, deficient and then it results in accumulation of that protein or lipid um, and affects myelin turnover. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could have a peroxisomal storage disorder or a fatty acid oxidation disorder Um, As uh, I'm sure you know, the myelin is uh, very dependent upon uh, lipids um, Mm -hmm. and its synthesis requires fatty acid oxidation. And so if that is impaired, you can have a uh, leukodystrophy. And then there's kind of another uh, category of uh, leukodystrophies in the demyelinating umbrella in which there, it's not proxisomal or lysosomal, but there's some deficiency of an enzyme that requires, that's required either for myelin synthesis or turnover and often leads to accumulation of substances. And so we can kind of talk about those in more detail. Do you have a preference of the lysosomal versus proxisomal to start with? <laughs> uh, sure. Why don't we start with the uh, lysosomal storage disorders? So there are uh, quite a few uh, different uh, you know, genetic conditions that fall under lysosomal storage disorders, but I think the most important ones to know about are uh, metachromatic leukodystrophy, uh, Krebet disease, and potentially uh, things like um, Tay-Sachs, which is a gangliosidosis. Uh, we can start, we can go ahead and start with the metachromatic leukodystrophy, and perhaps we can cover the uh, inheritance pattern, the enzymatic defect, and some clinical manifestations. Yep, so uh, the 
pretty much all of the lysosomal storage disorders are autosomal recessive. That's a good rule. <laughs> so that makes it easy. Metachromatic leukocyte dystrophy is a defect in the aerosulfatase A um, uh, enzymatic breakdown. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you, you end up with um, an accumulation of aryl sulfides. Mm-hmm. Um, in the lysosomes of the um, oligodendrocytes. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it leads to, uh, as you know, we've kind of already touched on, the uh, impairment in the turnover of myelin the, or the metabolism of myelin. Um, and so it tends to be early in onset, you know, within the first couple of years of life. Um, and it is, like most lysosomal storage diseases, it is progressive. That mitochromatic leukodystrophy usually causes a microcephaly, um, which is one way to kind of differentiate it sometimes from other types of lysosomal storage diseases. Uh, the MRI pattern, by the way, is, can also help you in differentiating between leukodystrophies. Um, and for MCL, the, the, at least earlier on in the course, the um, MRI pattern tends to be that there's T2 signal in hyperintensity in kind of the periventricular area that spares the U fibers. So you'll hear that a lot, whether uh, leukodystrophy is U fiber sparing or not sparing. Um, So MCL and pretty much all of the lysosomal disorders, as a general rule, tend to be um, U fiber sparing. That's great. So we can remember lysosomal disorders are U-fiber sparing and are autosomal recessive. That's a, a good framework to have in mind. Any other particular clinical manifestations that we could note about um, metachromatic leukodystrophy? Mm-hmm. So it tends to uh, involve cognitive decline a little bit earlier than motor decline, but mm-hmm. ultimately you will have both. And uh, another interesting characteristic about MCL, though not entirely unique, so it won't, it won't <laughs> um, differentiate necessarily between some other ones, is that it also involves the peripheral nerves. And so you can get a peripheral neuropathy in addition to your um, central uh, symptoms. So you may actually have some degree of spasticity, but also loss of reflexes, and that can be confusing sometimes. So we can always think about it as uh, abnormal accumulation can always cause neuropathy and cognitive uh, deficits, just like any other proliferative um, condition. Uh, so that could help us remember that. Wonderful. And um, should we talk about crab bay disease next? Sure. Um, so crab bay disease is also called a globoid cell leukodystrophy. Um, and it's due to a deficiency in the galactosyl ceramidase um, enzyme. It has somewhat similar symptoms to metachromatic leukodystrophy, but generally it tends to be more severe. Usually the onset of Crebe is in the first few months of life, and it's pretty rapidly progressive as opposed to MCL, you know, is kind of a years to even decades long progression. Crebe, um, a lot of times without any kind of intervention, can lead to death within a couple of years. D- does it manifest in a similar way uh, with the neuropathy and, and uh, cognitive decline as well, or does it have particular characteristics that can distinguish it from uh, me- metachromatic dystrophy? Yeah, besides the age of onset and the rapidity with which it progresses, um, Crebe, you might see more, um, more spasticity early on. Although in, in there are, like any, any of these, there tend to be subtypes, you know, the infantile onset, and the juvenile onset, adult onset. But um, it does also lead to, ultimately lead to a, a peripheral neuropathy as well. So sometimes babies present with hypotonia, actually. 
mm-hmm. as their first symptom as opposed to the um, kind of motor and cognitive decline. But um, I would say the, your best chance at, at differentiating the two is the early onset of the crevé. The, the MRI pattern also is is pretty similar in that it tends to be um, you know, kind of periventricular in sparing the U fibers. So the, um, unfortunately the MRI may not help you too much in differentiating. Uh, we'll do our best uh, to remember these, um, golden tips. Um, are there other systemic manifestation of, uh, these diseases, um, other than neurologic symptoms that we've covered? MCL also happens to have the potential for gallbladder disease, <laughs> which yeah. sounds kind of strange. Um, but uh, that is kind of the one other non-neurologic body system involvement is the gallbladder. Crebe, it doesn't typically, uh, I think it's kind of tough because like I said, that because the neurologic symptoms kind of are just so prominent. um, Take over essentially and it's very rapidly progressive. Yeah. So it's possible that in those who have, you know, either later onset disease or who had maybe some sort of um, stem cell therapy that slowed the progress, they might have other manifestations. To truth be told, I haven't come across those patients, so I I can't tell you for sure. (laughs) No, no, no problem. I I think, um, you know, I, I couldn't find much uh, else either when I was searching, briefly searching. And uh, any other additional uh, things to note about Corbet, or should we go ahead and talk about Tay-Sachs? Um, I think that's probably, those are the bullet points I think you probably need to know about with Corbet disease. Tay-Sachs is a very common one uh, that I remember very well from medical school, but I think even the neurology realm becomes more extensive. Yeah, so Tay-Sachs disease, um, which is um, GM2 gangliosidosis, there's a GM1 and GM2. And then even within GM2, there's two, there's Tay-Sachs and then there's um, Sandoff disease. And, and so GM2 is a deficiency in hexosaminidase A. And uh, the difference between Tay-Sachs and Sandoff is just that Tay-Sachs involves the alpha subunit and Sandoff involves both alpha and beta subunits. So Tay-Sachs also, um, like the others, is a autosomal recessive. The classic patient population in which this occurs, which tends to be, um, you know, in board questions is the Ashkenazi Jewish population. However, in, in practice, uh, that, that has become less prominent because of better education, genetic counseling among the Ashkenazi Jewish populations. And so you, you can also see Tay-Sachs among, there's an, actually an Irish population and a Canadian population, like a Cajun kind of. Uh, so there's other pockets that are associated with it besides um, Ashkenazi Jewish so Tay-Sachs is, and the gangliosidoses are among the conditions that have a lot of other organ involvement, particularly liver um, and spleen. So these kids get hepatosplenomegaly. They have the classic cherry red spot on their retina. Um, they can um, have other eye abnormalities. Um, and so those are often present very early on, um, you know, like shortly after birth. Um, and so that, that can be kind of a big clue from the beginning. But Tay-Sachs, it is, um, it's not just a, li- I mean, it's a lysosomal storage disease, but it does ultimately involve the cortex as well. Eventually, in addition to the um, leukodystrophy, you'll have a lot of cortical atrophy that goes with it. And um, the infantile onset, which is the most common, uh, starts usually within like four to six months of life. Uh, and it's relatively rapidly progressive. The you know severe cases, um, the children unfortunately die by the time they're four or five years old. They pr- usually never get to the point where they can walk. So it's unfortunately it's a pretty 
severe disease, uh, epilepsy is very common with Tay-Sachs as well. So just to kind of recap the lysosomal storage deficiencies, uh, metachromatic leukodystrophy uh, is autosomal recessive. Um, it's uh, enzymatic defect in the iral sulfatase A, and uh, that will lead to accumulation uh, in the oligodendrocyte of uh, of what again, Dr. Cardinelli? I, I could not. Oh, basically, of sulfides. Sulfides, exactly, um, and that will cause microcephaly and MRI pattern of a T2 hyperintensity uh, and the periventricular um, structures. Typically sparing the U-fibers will lead to clinical manifestations of cognitive decline, peripheral neuropathy could be spasticity or even loss of reflexes and could cause some gallbladder dysfunction. As far as crabase disease, uh, it's also an autosomal recessive and um, it's an enzymatic defect in the galactocerebrosidase leading to very rapidly progressive decline in the first few months of life with spasticity as well, uh, could also cause some hypotonia and very similar MRI finding um, to metachromatic leukodystrophy. And the last one would be Tay-Sachs, which is a GM2 gangliosidase enzymatic defect, which would lead to a defect essentially in the hexosaminidase causing cortical atrophy. The infantile portion could be like very rapidly progressive, could cause epilepsy as well. And uh, as far as the systemic manifestations could cause hepatitis Panamegaly, uh, as well as others that uh, Dr. Cardinelli had mentioned. Anything else that I missed, Dr. Cardinelli? No, I think that's um, that pretty much wraps it up. Um, and in terms of like testing for lysosomal storage diseases, nowadays it's actually relatively straightforward. You can literally order a lysosomal enzyme panel. <laughs> so if, if you see an MRI pattern that sounds kind of like this, uh, you know, white matter disease, that's U fiber sparing, and there's progressive um, cognitive and motor decline, then, you know, you can order this panel and screen for the enzyme levels. So we can move next to um, paroxysomal um, defects. Yep. So the paroxysome as a refresher is responsible for fatty acid oxidation, which Mm -hmm. again is important for myelin synthesis and turnover. Um, and so some examples of proxosomal storage diseases would be Zellweger syndrome, Refsum, um, and X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy. And I think the um, adrenal leukodystrophy is probably the highest yield in this category. Um, and so X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy is um, a deficit in um, very long chain fatty acid oxidation. And so when you are screening for it in the blood, and actually nowadays it even pops up on the newborn screen, um, what you find is that um, you have certain types of fatty acids, these very long chain fatty acids that are elevated because they're not being um, properly metabolized. It is, as it implies, X-linked. <laughs> um, although, uh, so of course that means boys tend to be affected. Um, however, that is not to say that girls don't have some type of phenotype um, if they have one allele affected as well. The X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy, kind of the classic presentation of it is that a school-aged boy, maybe five or six years old, um, starts to have uh, behavioral changes. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it may actually look at first like um, ADHD, mm-hmm. but uh, unlike ADHD, it becomes progressively worse. Um, they may start to have a lot of loss of inhibition. Um, And then ultimately, they start having cognitive decline as well. 
Um, and then later on, they may have some uh, motor decline additionally. The other, so I mean, this is a neurologic um, form. However, uh, it is adrenal dystrophy for a reason. So some kids actually present first with an Addison's disease type picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, an adrenal insufficiency. Um, and uh, there are certain types in which the Addison's is the only thing that manifests, that they don't manifest any kind of neurologic component. But uh, I would say that the majority do. Um, and like I said, it's usually kind of in that like early school age. The nice thing about, so excellent adrenal dystrophy on MRI actually um, can be distinguishable because it tends to have a more posterior predominance to it. Uh, as opposed to more diffusely periventricular, like with the lysosomal storage diseases. Uh, and so one mnemonic that um, some people have used is X is at the end of the alphabet. And so you can think of, you know, at the ba- in the back of the, the brain. It's, uh, I heard uh, ex-boyfriend also sits at the back. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, um, and so X-linked adrenal dystrophy is uh, on some newborn, like I said, it can be on newborn screens. Uh, and because the reason for that is because uh, it seems that stem cell therapy actually works for, for kids if they, if they receive it pre-symptomatically, especially, or early on in the disease course. So, you know, we kind of want to know about it as soon as possible so that we can start effectively treating it. That's wonderful. So uh, let me just kind of recap uh, adrenal leukodystrophy, uh, which is a problem in fatty acid oxidation uh, and tend to cause accumulation of long chain fatty acids. It's X-linked, uh, which is essentially the one um, disease that we discussed as, as X-linked so far. Um, it, it tend to cause behavioral changes, a motor decline. Um, sometimes the presenting uh, clinical finding would be Addison's disease, which is hypocortisolism. And the MRI finding is typically the, uh, the T2 changes would be like more posterior predominance, unlike the anterior predominance, which we're going to discuss in Alexander's disease. Uh, and then the other category, what could we discuss? So in the, um, we might leave Pleasers Merthbacher for, for the end. Um, we can kind of talk about Alexander disease and Canavan disease as sort of being in their own little category. (laughs) Um, They're a little bit harder to kind of categorize, but in general, they both involve the accumulation of material, which eventually leads to leukodystrophy with macrocephaly. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to the other ones, which either have normocephaly or microcephaly, these two conditions actually result in macrocephaly, um, which is a a great way to, to distinguish them. Alexander disease uh, is a GFAP uh, mutation in which the, you know, GFAP, of course, is important for oligodendrocyte um, health and production of myelin. Uh, And so what ends up happening is the GFAP, rather than doing its job, it um, winds up forming these aggregates, uh, which on the pathology are termed Rosenthal fibers, which you may recognized as being a, a feature of um, like pilocytic astrocytomas. Mm-hmm. Um, not surprising because they both involve GFAP. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> so um, that's important to remember. I think uh, if, you're, if you're going to expect something to be on the exam, that might potentially be on there as the Rosenthal fibers for Alexander's disease. The, the MRI pattern on Alexander and Canavan actually is that they're both involved the U fibers 
um, mm -hmm. rather than being you fiber sparing. Okay. Um, and uh, Alexander, the mnemonic here is that Alexander sits at the front of the class. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, the pattern of a leukodystrophy on MRI tends to be that is more frontal predominant. Any, any other systemic manifestations or particular neurologic manifestation that we need to worry about, Alexander? Or? Um, I mean, yeah, ultimately, like all of the other <laughs> diseases that we've been talking about, I mean, it's, it's, they all are going to result in um, regression, you know, cognitive and motor regression. Um, so Alexander's, they, they wind up having a lot of spasticity. Um, this one does not necessarily cause a um, peripheral neuropathy. You may not see that type of manifestation, mm -hmm. um, but uh, the macrocephaly occurs, and then it also progresses, and typically the, the lifespan is something on the order of about 10 years. Great. C can we talk, can we discuss in, in more details Canavan's disease? Um, yeah, so Canavan's disease similarly causes a macrocephaly. Um, it is a defect in the aspartate um, acylase enzyme, which is important for um, myelin synthesis. Uh, and basically what it results in is accumulation of NAA. So you could actually pick that up on like an MR spectroscopy and it causes some vacualization um, of the myelin. And so I think that probably is what contributes to the macrocephalus because you're literally puffing up <laughs> all of the, the myelin with, um, unfortunately, with non-functional material. Canavan disease on MRI, like I said, it's, it involves the U fibers but it tends to be not necessarily frontal. It tends to be a little bit more either diffuse or doesn't really pick a side, if you will. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can remember that it's in between Alexander's and, and the X-linked. What are, what are additional findings that we can remember in Canavans? Um, yeah, so, you know, again, there, there's an infantile form, which infantile forms are always going to be the most severe. Mm -hmm. um, but they can present with hypotonia, a lot of motor delays, uh, some sleep disturbances, seizures, uh, feeding difficulties. Uh, and so that's kind of the, you know, in infancy. Um, and then it can progress to the point where they can't feed, they need G-tubes, um, they start getting more spastic um, mm -hmm. and can actually resemble cerebral palsy. There may actually be some relative sparing of the speech as opposed to some of the other disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, they may actually do okay in school from a cognitive standpoint. Um, and then the other thing that sometimes kids with cannabis disease can, can develop is retinitis pigmentosa. Which take me to Alexander's disease. So it's an autosomal recessive again. And, and as we remember, um, a lot of the lysosomal uh, diseases were autosomal recessive, so we're back to autosomal recessive. It causes macrocephaly. It's a, a GFAP mutation. Uh, right, so it, it leads to the, those um, Rosenthal fibers, aggregates yeah. of GFAP. Which is what, what's in common between Alexander's disease and pilocytic astrocytoma as a buzzword, Rosenthal fibers uh, would be helpful. And like we said, it's more anterior. Um, the, the, the T2 changes on MRI, which means that it involves the U-fiber, unlike the lysosomal uh, storage diseases that we discussed, which spare the U-fiber. Um, and we can remember Alexander's A is at the beginning of the alphabet, so it would be uh, sitting in the front of the class, whereas um, X uh, in adrenal leukodystrophy X-linked 
it sits at the back of the class, which means posterior T2 changes on MRI. And as far as the Canavan's disease also causes macrocephaly, uh, we're talking about aspartyl acylase deficiency, uh, which leads to abnormal accumulation of acetyl aspartic acid. Short is NAA. Um, and the T2 changes in Canavan's disease are more diffuse. So kind of in between, between adrenal leukodystrophy and um, Alexander's. Typically the manifestation will be spastic children, often like you know, could even look like cerebral palsy. Um, they will be sometimes sparing the speech. Um, it causes seizures, hypotonia, uh, motor delays, feeding difficulties where um, children, unfortunately, will need like PEC tubes. That's about it. Any others that we would need to know for exam purposes, Dr. Cardinelli? Yeah, I think the only other one that might show up on the exams would be the plesius Merzbacher okay. disease. And so um, in the beginning, I mentioned splitting leukodystrophies into the demyelinating and the hypomyelinating disorders. Mm-hmm. Plesius Merzbacher kind of falls more into the hypomyelinating disorders. And as a rule, hypomyelinating disorders are, are um, caused by um, some sort of uh, deficit in, in myelin synthesis in the first place, not so much the metabolism or turnover, but the actual synthesis of the myelin. Um, and so Plesius Merzbacher is an example of this. Um, this is an X-linked disease. Um, it's the PLP1 uh, gene that's mutated. Um, and PLP1 uh, or PLP is a protein that is important in myelin synthesis. It's, a, it's a kind of like one of the um, key components um, in myelin synthesis. So if you're not making it properly, then you're not going to be able to make the myelin. Um, and so please, it's Merzbacher. It can be actually a little bit tricky in the beginning to identify it because children don't myelinate right away, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't really see a normal myelination pattern in kids until they're about two years old. So in the beginning, Plesius Merzbacher can, can appear to be, have a normal MRI, but later on in life when you would expect to see certain, you know, changes in the T1 and T2 signal, the white matter, then you start to notice the, the changes in kids with Plesius Merzbacher. I think a really good way, by the way, to differentiate hypomyelinating and demyelinating on um, MRI is that while both have T2 and flare hyperintensity in the white matter, the hypomyelinating types will have um, T1 hyperintensity or isointensity, whereas demyelinating will actually have a T1 hypointensity. So if you see both T2 and T1 hyperintensity in the white matter, then you, you should be thinking more about hypomyelination disorders. Wow, that's uh, that's a real big realization. I feel uh, I'm much smarter already. Uh, <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Cardinelli. Is this the first hypomyelinating uh, disorder that we've discussed? This is the the yeah. This is the first one that we've discussed today. Anything else that we can remember about Pelzius Merzbacher? disease <laughs> other than the fact that it's like really difficult to say <laughs> uh so uh you know the presentation of plesius Merzbacher is going to sound really similar <laughs> to some of these others in that you know the more severe um onset which is called conatal plesius Merzbacher disease has an infantile onset uh it starts out with failure to thrive um maybe some difficulty breathing some strider actually some dysarthria ataxia can be prominent actually, which might help you to differentiate it a little bit from some of the others we've talked about. Um, these kids can also often have seizures. Okay. Um, 
and uh, ultimately they wind up getting some joint contractures because of the, the severity of the spasticity. Um, this episode does make me sad for all these children, but I'm so grateful. <laughs> well, the good news is they're all very, very rare, <laughs> even though we, we insist you learn about them. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad we were... Um, you know, we were lucky to have you review all of these today, but just to kind of um, recap um, Pelzius Bersbacher uh, disease, which I apologize if I'm mispronouncing over and over, it's a, a proteolipid protein one defect. And it, you know, we can remember striator, dysarthria, ataxia, seizures, joint contractures, which are typically in the most severe infantile form. Yeah, and to, and to kind of summarize again, when you're thinking about how you differentiate these like I said, from an MRI perspective, you know, look to see is it U-fiber sparing or U-fiber involving? Is it anterior predominant, posterior predominant, or diffuse? And, uh, you know, is there T1 hyperintensity or T1 hypointensity? Those are some of the things that you can use to differentiate between all of these different diseases. Exactly. So if it's a T1 hyperintensity and a T2 hyperintensity, we're typically thinking about hypomyelination. Uh, which would be Merzbacher. I'm just going to say it for short. You can <laughs> call it PMD. <laughs> yes. Okay, perfect. Oh, it's too late for that now, Dr. Cardinelli. <laughs> At the end of the episode, then I realized that there could have been a shorter <laughs> way to say it. Um, versus the other abnormal uh, myelination or demyelinating, which is essentially all the rest that we've discussed today. Um, are more T2 hyperintensities, and we've kind of recapped over and over where the location is. So hopefully it sticks into your mind. Maybe I'll say it one more time for my sake. If we're talking about the, the front of the class. We're thinking about Alexander, um, which uh, would be involve the U-fiber. If we're thinking about the back of the class, that would be our X-linked, which is adrenal leukodystrophy, um, and uh, that's more posterior predominance. Uh, and if we're thinking more diffuse, then we're talking about cannabins. Did I get that yep. right? Yep, and cannabins involves the U-fibers. Thank you so <laughs> much. Uh, I, I really appreciate your help navigating this time. Dr. Cardinale, have a good day. You're welcome. Take care.